Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Soledago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm answering your questions, questions that I've received via Instagram and email, and I just want to dig a little deeper and answer them and share them with the general listening audience. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. So I am excited to start um, this new type of podcast, this new episode, and I might look forward to doing it monthly if there's interest and if you find it interesting. So let me know or send me questions that you would want me to answer on the podcast, either via my email, um, which you can get off of my website, or it's basically School at gmail or on Instagram through uh, my DMs, either Solidago Herb School or the podcast, the Healthy Herb Podcast Instagram. And so I have a handful of questions that I've received, and I have written brief answers back to the people that asked them, most of them, some of them I just received. But I always find that I, I have so much to say <laughs> to answer a question, and I just don't have the time or the energy to type it all out. And it just, I mean, it's a lot easier to talk, to answer questions, and to kind of get into the complexities. Because let's face it, herbalism is magnificent, and part of why it's so magnificent is that there's so much variation. And so many different takes and understandings and ways of working with plants. So it's kind of fun to explore different arenas in the questions. So we're just going to dive right in. And the first question is, can dried rose petals be used instead of fresh rose petals in the variety of remedies you described in the rose episode? 
I don't have any rose bushes, but I have purchased some dried organic dog rose petals. So basically, the short answer is yes. If you have the rose petals, um, you can use, still use them in a variety of ways. However, the dried rose petals don't really have as much scent to them as the fresh rose petals because, again, like the rose is so... It's really hard to kind of capture that scent, and that's why the essential oils are so expensive. However, there's a lot less water content in the dried rose petals, which can make it easier for working with in some preparations. I would say um, making a tincture with the dried rose petals instead of fresh rose petals would be just fine. Um, you probably want to, instead of filling your jar totally full with rose petals, just fill it half full or even a third full of rose petals and then fill the jar with the alcohol because the petals are going to absorb the alcohol and expand, uh, whereas the fresh rose petals already are fully saturated, so they don't expand more. Let's see, for the infused oil, dried rose petals could be used instead of the fresh rose petals. They usually would need to be heated on a low, slow heat. Although I have found it's really incomparable making a rose infused oil from fresh petals versus dried petals. It just, the smell, the scent does not impart into the oil with the dried rose petals. So that might be a lost cause. For the tea, um, definitely dried rose petals might even be better than the fresh rose petals for a tea because they're going to be more concentrated in some of those more um, like bitter and, and tannic flavors. So, you know, you'd have to use a lot more fresh petals to get a really flavorful tea. So the dried pe petals will be maybe even preferred for tea except you won't have those really light, delicate rose fragrance in your tea, but I think it will still make a really nice tea. So it really depends. It is what you have, so work with it and see what you think. Um, and then, you know, you can plant a rose bush <laughs> in the spring and have your own fresh roses. You could even possibly plant a rose in a big container so you could harvest your own rose petals. Anything else I want to say there? I guess maybe a rose-infused vinegar would probably work well with the dried rose petals. And again, you'd make that similar to how you would make the tincture, where you would just fill the jar third full. And you probably want like a really light flavored vinegar, like apple cider vinegar might have too much flavor to it. So maybe doing like a champagne vinegar or a white wine vinegar or something like that, that maybe is not as, doesn't have so much of its own flavor to impart because it's going to be delicate and gentle with the dried rose petals. With the honey, um, it's probably not going to do a whole lot. A lot of people, when they make honey with dried plant material, they will heat it low and slow. And I have never had luck with that. I have an electric burner. I have a hot crock pot that I can't 
necessarily turn super low. And so I often will burn or brown my honey when I'm trying to infuse um, dried herbs into it. So for me, it's a lost cause. But if you have a way of really slowly over a long period of time and on a super low heat, warming your honey with those rose petals, it might offer you a nice remedy. So short of the long, ideally you use fresh rose petals, you have dried rose petals, that's fine. Work with them, especially in teas and baths and washes, water-based preparations, and probably tinctures would be your best bet. Oils and maybe definitely not as beneficial. All right, next question. I'm curious about herbal honeys. Is there a way to make an infused honey with fresh herbs like thyme? I've read different things on whether you can do a fresh infused herbal honey with fresh herbs because the extra moisture could cause mold. I... Actually, as I was just saying, I actually prefer using fresh herbs to make infused honey with, and especially thyme or herbs that don't have a lot of moisture content in them when they're already fresh. So like thyme, rosemary, sage, even some mints, um, you know, plants that aren't mostly water plants that are more herb and that have a lot of volatile oils to them work really well. Uh, I think one of the best herbal honeys I've ever made was with lemon thyme and it was so good and it was just infused in honey and then I later made a shrub with that honey so I took and I just left the thyme in there and then I took the thyme and the honey and put it in a jar and added frozen blueberries and some apple cider vinegar. And you could already have infused that apple cider vinegar with another herb. Mm, I'm not sure that I did. And then I just let that sit. And that was delicious. Also, you know, with the honeys, you can just, you know, leave your herb in the honey. And then if you want to make tea, it's almost a way of preserving fresh herbs especially that have really delicate volatile oils because then you can just take a scoop of your honey and herb and put it in hot water and make your tea with it. There, I have made a honey with violet flowers that didn't pan out so well um, because, you know, you put the violet flowers, you fill the jar as much as you can up with violet flowers and violet flowers are mostly water. Um, and then you put the honey in and the honey sucks all the water out of the violet flowers. So you have a jar of honey and then this like little thin uh, layer of violet flowers that's left over after all the water is taken out. And then your honey is like really liquidy. And I was like, oh, well, I just want more violet flowers to a ratio of my honey. So I just kept adding more violet flowers every day. And it just made the honey more watery day after day and it did um, end up fermenting and which you know some people go for that they want a fermented honey because you have water and sugar in like a airtight situation and that leads to fermentation especially if it's fresh plant material that you're picking from the wild that is already covered in all kinds of natural yeasts 
But this fermentation did not really smell good or look good, and maybe I left it in too long. So it's kind of a fine line. Um, it's something to play around with and keep an eye on. So the next time I made violet flower honey, I just put as much violet flowers in the jar as I could the first round and poured honey on it, and then that was it, and I just let it be. And then I would... Um, I think I added that honey to like face mask preparations, which was really nice. And you can even spread it on toast with the violet flowers, but they definitely shrink up a lot. And it's always good to put your honey in a dish or a bowl while it's infusing because you will often get at least a little bit of fermentation and it's going to bubble and it's going to kind of push that honey up out of the jar and it's going to be a little leaky and messy. That goes the same with oils as well, especially with fresh plant material. It just They have a way of seeping out of those jars, especially because you want your jar pretty full. Um, I've never really had an experience with mold. Uh, more of my experience is with fermentation, although perhaps if the plant material was sticking out of the honey and was not fully coated in honey, then maybe some mold would breed. But I always think of honey as being a preservative. And so I think that the honey might actually prevent mold from forming. But it, but it is, I mean, honey is very fermentable, hence that's how we get mead. Um, Cause that yeast loves to eat honey. So yeah, so I would say play around with it. The worst that happens is, you know, you get a, a bunk remedy. That's why we always work with new remedies in small jars. So we're not wasting a large amount of material if it doesn't go right. But it's how we learn and how we explore and play. So how I made my thyme honey is I harvested fresh thyme right out of my garden. I actually had the honey and the jar with me and like a stir stick in the garden. And I chopped up the honey or chopped up the thyme and put it to fill the jar as much as possible. I mean, you don't want it like so packed that nothing's going to penetrate through it, right? You want at least enough airspace where the honey can kind of slowly penetrate. And then I poured the honey into the jar and I kind of stirred the thyme around with the honey. And then I would add more honey and then I would stir it around again and add more honey. And I and I want it mostly just so the thyme is covered, fully covered in honey. And there's a little bit on the tops, you know, so there's no like plant material up in the airspace. And then I just let it sit. And another way that, that I've made fresh herbal honeys is instead of stirring, I would just chop up the herb, whatever herb it is, and fill the jar lightly packed and then I just pour some honey right on the top of the jar and I don't stir or anything and I just put the lid on and then I come back to it in an hour or two and that honey has made its way into the jar and into the herb, herb material and herb material starting to shrink and uh, a little bit and then I just add more honey and I'll come back two or three times until I've added enough honey to fully fill the jar. So it's like the, the short method or the long method. And oftentimes I'll just leave, leave them together. But if you're concerned that it might start fermenting, um, 
you know, or molding, you can always strain out the plant material and just have a flavored honey if you want. But, um, and then sometimes like if people do that with ginger root or other roots, they'll like strain out the honey and then you'll have this like honey covered root, elecampane root or ginger root or, um, or like maybe angelica root or angelica stock, maybe even some berries. And then you can like put, lay those out to dry basically. And they will dry and you'll have like little candied honey bites of herb. So that's something to play around with as well. Next question. I was reading your blog about pine needles. I've been wanting to get out there and harvest some. I have some pine trees outside my apartment and I do not think the trees are treated with any pesticides. Would you recommend going out on a nature walk on a trail or to harvest versus in the city? So I would say for trees, I mean, it's good that they're not sprayed with pesticides. The more I landscape on people's properties, the more I realize how many people spray, you know, have pest control come in and spray for mosquitoes and brown tail moth caterpillars and ticks and what have you. I mean, I don't even know what they spray, but it can often sometimes be once a month they have people come in and spray pesticides in their whole yard. I don't know if they're spraying the trees or the the grass or what, but I'm assuming that they are spraying trees. So it's always good to double check and make sure that they haven't been sprayed with pesticides. And if you're in a city, sometimes cities will spray for mosquitoes um, as well, which check out my... Um, podcast episode on the insect apocalypse because that is a really interesting thing and I think this really leads to it uh but otherwise I mean the tree if it's in the city or if it's right outside your front door and you live in a neighborhood or in a city or on the side of a road um you know that tree is breathing the same air you're breathing so it's hard to say, well, I want the tree to be purer, you know, than what I am for medicine. And the other interesting thing is that if, you know, if you're worried about the carbon monoxide or the exhaust from cars and that the tree's absorbing that, it's actually, it's actually easier for the trees and healthier for the trees to absorb carbon monoxide than carbon dioxide, which is what we emit, both of which are poisonous to us, um, but they're actually food for the tree, right? And so the tree takes in the carbon, either dioxide, which is two oxygens and a carbon, or the carbon monoxide, which is one carbon and an oxygen, and takes it in and then breathes out oxygen, right? So it's a lot easier for the tree just to break one bond between the carbon and the oxygen to get what it needs versus the two bonds of the carbon dioxide. So oftentimes plants will grow really well on the sides of roads because the carbon monoxide is food for them, even though it's poison for us. Although 
There's nothing wrong with going on a nature walk and harvesting some pine needles from a beautiful, pristine forest. Um, if like if it's a protected land or a state park, there might be rules against foraging. You know, picking up pine boughs off of the ground, people might have concern with that because you're disrupting the ecosystem and food for the soil microbes. So if you are going out on a nature trail, just know that it's okay to forage there legally. Um, and if, you know, the one benefit of harvesting from a tree right outside your front door is that you can really easily build a relationship with that tree because you're seeing it every day and you can sit with it, hug it, talk to it. You know, you can find the bough freshly fallen off the ground. Usually it's really nice for pine needles to just harvest them after a big windstorm because there's often a lot of pine needles that come down or even branches or twigs that come down after windstorms. And you can just harvest those. That way you aren't causing any damage to the tree and you're just tidying up your yard. So there are some thoughts on that. Okay, next question. I just finished your podcast on echinacea. I loved it. So much incredible information. I was curious about it as a tonic. I know you mentioned echinacea can be protective as a preventative. So I was curious how you would use it. You mentioned dosage for an acute situation, half your body weight in drops. What are your thoughts on a dosage if you're taking it as a tonic preventatively throughout the winter? So this is interesting, and for me, I would say, yes, the echinacea does have immune um, supportive and tonifying properties, and that's more because, from my understanding, it has these polysaccharides in it, um, which support immune function and kind of wake up immune function. It's the same... Um, chemical constituents that are found in mushrooms and found in uh, astragalus root and it's like what makes it a little sweet and basically from my understanding these polysaccharides are the similar constituents to what bacteria or pathogens carry with them as food so it's almost like these little pathogens have these little backpacks of polysaccharides and every bacteria has a different type of poly polysaccharide as many sugars, right? And so it could be any arrangement of a type of sugar. And our immune system is cued into looking for these polysaccharides and that's how they recognize um, pathogens and bacteria that aren't supposed to be in our body. And so when we ingest polysaccharides from plants that aren't necessarily attached to bacteria, our immune system still gets cued into the fact that we have polysaccharides running around in our gut or in our bloodstream. And it kind of wakes up and it gets the, um, the immune system, the white blood cells, you know, on alert and looking around so that we'll see those polysaccharides and be like, oh, that's not a pathogen. That's fine. But while I'm awake and on my rounds, why don't I look and see if there are any other things that I need to worry about, like cancer cells or pathogens? So that's, from my understanding, 
one of the ways that the polysaccharides are beneficial. Now, polysaccharides are extracted into water, ideally, and less and not into alcohol. So really, a water infusion or a decoction is going to be the best way to access those polysaccharides and to ingest them. Now, a lot of tinctures are made with, you know, half alcohol and half water, um, which is what I prefer, like the 100 proof vodka, which is half water and half alcohol. So you are getting a little bit of polysaccharides, but you're getting a lot more and then you can consume a lot more in a water-based extract versus in a tincture. So when we're taking the tincture of echinacea, we're really going for different chemical constituents that can actually um, fight infection as well as my understanding is that they will also like catalyze an immune response in a different way than the polysaccharides do. So if you're looking to work with echinacea as an immune tonic, where I would start is with um, making a nourishing herbal infusion with like the echinacea leaf um, or a decoction with echinacea root. And when I say nourishing herbal infusion, that's like a strong um, extract into water. So we weigh out an ounce of the plant material and we put it in a quart jar and we cover it with boiling water and a tight lid and we let it steep for four to eight hours and then we strain it and drink it. So we have a nice concentrated tea and that also allows enough time for any nutrition to also be extracted from that plant, which is also going to be beneficial for the immune system. Added nutrition helps the immune system. For me, if I was looking at echinacea as an immune tonic to enjoy throughout the winter, I would work with the dried leaf material and I would drink a nourishing infusion of it once a week, like one quart a week, and put it in my rotation with my other nourishing infusions. Um, and I have done that. I actually accidentally purchased like a pound of echinacea leaf and flour cut and sifted when I had meant to order a pound of the dried root that I was going to make tincture with. I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? So I started making the nourishing infusions and I find that really effective. Um, and I also give it to my daughter too. And it's very mild tasting. And then I just save the tincture because tinctures are expensive and they're more concentrated and they're more medicinal and better for acute situations. So I save my tincture for when I feel a cold coming on or if I think that I have been exposed to something and then I get in on the tincture because you're going to use a lot. I mean, that dosage of tincture, which is, you know, half your body weight in drops, but that's, you know, every hour or two. Okay, so you're going to go through like an ounce, you could potentially go through an ounce of tincture pretty quickly, maybe in a day, maybe in a day and a half. And if you're buying that, that's $15 or something. I mean, if you're making it, then that would be better, but you need to already have it on hand, right? So now, really, what I would do if I <clears throat> was interested in an immune tonic, then I would probably more likely work with astragalus root than I would echinacea in my, for my personal preference. And 
I would make astragalus root nourishing infusion. So I would weigh out an ounce of the cut and sifted herb. I find that the tongue depressor style astragalus doesn't work as well as the cut and sifted. And I would put it in a quart jar, um, you know, cover it in boiling water, let it steep eight hours or even maybe a little longer. And then I would sip on that and I would drink that once a week, probably. You could, you could drink it more. I'd also take the astragalus root and put it in bone broth, put it in soup stock um, in a way that it could get strained out. I wouldn't want to just throw a bunch of cut and sifted root in my soup because uh, that's not going to, you know, you're going to feel like you have wood chips in, in your soup. So you don't want that. But in the broth itself is nice, or some people even put it in their rice. And in these instances, the tongue depressor style cut root is ideal because you can easily take it out of your food. And astragalus root, again, loaded with polysaccharides and also minerals. And But I think it might have more polysaccharides. You can really taste that sweet that sweetness in it. You could also, instead of doing the infusion, you could do a decoction, which is a simmering of the root um, for like 20 to 40 minutes to really do a faster extraction. I have a few more questions to get to, and I'll do so in just a moment. So stick with me and I'll be right back. Question. I know you mentioned a few times in your podcasts about using 100 proof vodka for tinctures. Is it okay to use 80 proof? I know a local distillery that has an organic vodka that's 80 proof. And another herbalist mentioned they use that for the folk method of tincturing. Curious on your thoughts. So I have been trained... Um, to use 100 proof vodka. And some herbalists do use 80 proof, but you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck with the 100 proof vodka. Although I have not, I've yet to find uh, organic, easy to find 100 proof vodka. So if organic is more important to you than your ending remedy, then I mean, and some people say that the organic would be the quality of the ending, re would be more important for the ending remedy. You know, I, it, it's distilled, so you're not going to be getting any sort of residues of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. I understand the wanting to support organic agriculture, absolutely. I know that this local distillery that you speak of also has 150 proof alcohol, which I have used, and they, they make specifically for um, medicine. I think they, they make it specifically for cannabis um, medicines, 
for people who are making cannabis medicines, but which is more important that you have a high proof because there's so much resin in cannabis that you want to extract. You really, it benefits to have that high, higher proof. But I've used that 150 proof for other herbal remedies, and it just is, the alcohol is just too intense for me. So truth be told, I just go to my local grocery store and purchase like whatever brand they have that's 100 proof vodka, and it's, it's not a high quality brand. But it's fine. It works, and it's, it, it extracts the herbs into, it's not like I'm going to be drinking the alcohol to get a buzz on, you know, I'm using it to extract the herb into. Um, And so the reason why we want 100 proof is tinctures work through osmosis. And so I always think back to like high school biology class. And osmosis is basically like the, the, the natural way is that solution wants to be the same on both sides of a cell wall or membrane. So you want an equal amount of water, basically, on the inside and the outside of the cell or the membrane of the plant. And so we could say that plants on average, fresh plants, because I like to really use a lot of fresh plants, have... 75% water, we'll say on average, and 25% non-water. Okay, so that's that's on that the plant side. And then your alcohol side, you want to have a big enough difference that you have a big extraction, you have a big pull of osmosis over to the other side, which is gonna bring along with it the plant constituents. So 100 proof vodka is 50% alcohol and 50% water. So we have a, on the outside of your plant is 50% water, on the inside of your plant is 75% water. So that's a 25% difference. So that's, that's a big pull, okay? And that's some reasons why some people use even higher proof um, alcohols. And I'll mention why I'm not a fan of that in a, in a moment, but because you want that big pull, that big ratio difference. So at 80 proof alcohol is 40% alcohol and 60% water, because proof is two times of your percentage of alcohol. Okay, so if you're using 80 proof alcohol, you have 75% water on your plant side of the wall, And on the outside of the wall, the alcohol side of the wall, you have 60% water. So that's only a 15% difference. So there's not going to be as much pull and not as much extraction. That's the theory that I was taught and that I understand. And so that's why 100 proof is better than 80 proof. Not to say that lots of herbalists don't use 80 proof. And what you could do is you could do your own experiment and make a small jar of 80 proof with 80 proof vodka and make a small jar with 100 proof vodka. And you be the judge and you see which one you prefer. It's again, it's herbalism. There's a huge gray area and a lot of leeway to work and to see what works best for you. 
Now, a lot of people will use what's like 198 proof, which is almost 100% alcohol. You can never actually have 100% alcohol because it's always going to absorb some moisture from the air, from my understanding. So you'll have like, what, 98.9% alcohol versus the 75% alcohol. So that's like a, a really big, um, I mean, sorry. So that's like a 2% water versus 75% water. That's a huge extraction. However, when we use that much alcohol, um, that alcohol is really detrimental to our health. I mean, if you were to drink too much, it's called grain alcohol or high proof alcohol, um, you would die. But you're, you know, you're not going to die from drinking too much vodka. Plus, vodka is, from my understanding, the easiest alcohol on the liver for the liver to deal with for whatever reason. I think because it, it doesn't have a lot of other volatile oils to it. It doesn't have a lot of other things the liver has to process. It's basically just alcohol, which is another reason why I like vodka. It doesn't have a lot of its own flavor or scent that it imparts. And tinctures made with that really potent vodka, I mean, not that really potent grain alcohol or high-proof alcohol, is it's just they're hard to take. Even when they have water at, because then, I mean, often herbalists that use that grain alcohol will dilute it back down and add 50% water and 50% alcohol on average. Um, and, but you still have that really potent grain alcohol. So, yeah, basically for me, I just stick with 100 proof vodka. It's easy, it's easy to buy, it's, not super intense. It's, it's uh, quote unquote, maybe healthy, healthier than any other alcohol. And it makes a good solvent. You can just see what works for you. I have heard um, herbalists say if they use the 80 proof, they just let it sit longer, you know, longer than the six weeks to, and hope for a better extraction uh, than the 100 proof. Okay, so the next question kind of ties in with this topic. And quick question about tincture menstruum. A lot of the tincture recipes I am finding call for a one to five ratio. I'm in the process of making my own tinctures for myself and my patients. The problem is the high alcohol content my patients will be working up to, parentheses Lyme disease, with a large number of tinctures and high doses. I'm thinking of making a more potent one-to-one -one tinctures instead of one-to-five, so I can decrease the tincture dose and thus decrease alcohol consumption each day. Is there any downside, such as not enough alcohol content in a one-to-one -one ratio to pull out all the plant components? Or will the one-to-one -one and one-to-five be similar in medicinal properties when doses are equivalent, less drops per dose of the one-to-one? -one? Okay, so this is, um, you know, maybe I am not the best person to answer this question specifically because I really work with the folk method of tincture making. I 
I have learned about, you know, doing this, the scientific method where you weigh it all out and it, and it can get really detailed. And if you are a product maker, manufacturer, and you want to have a similar product each time that you sell it, then I understand why you'd want to, you know, do your measurements and do your percentages. And, you know, we really are starting to get more down the road toward drug therapy versus herbal therapy in my mind. Anytime we want to make um, a really like measured, exact and concentrated and potent and strong medicine, we, we start heading down the road and often slippery slope toward pharmaceuticals in the long run. And that's, that's how we got to the pharmaceutical. Um, so for me personally, I think that, well, to start, I will address this question more specifically, but just to start, there's nothing wrong with the folk herbalism method of tincture making. What it involves is trusting in variance and understanding that variance is everywhere. It's in people, it's in plants, it's in day to day, it's in the soil, it's in the environment. And when we're working with plants, there is inherent variation, especially when we're working with whole plants. And this is what freaks people out. And that's why we have drugs, because we don't want variation, right? We want to know exactly what we're taking in the exact amount and the exact chemical, cons- you know, what, what exactly is in the chemistry so we can measure it and then we can adjust it. And with folk herbalism or folk methods of making herbal remedies, a lot of it is like trusting and enjoying the natural variances and knowing that herbs work and they don't have to be super concentrated and potentized to do a job. And the more concentrated and potentized we make our remedies, the more chances for them to have side effects, be dangerous, have interactions with drugs, there are the more we're able to just keep them in their whole state and extract them um, as more of a whole plant extract, the variation within the plant is going to help modulate the remedy, which is what we want. So that's why I like to have, you know, 50% alcohol and 50% water because the water extracts properties that tend to be gentler and more modulating, where the alcohol extracts more poisonous constituents, which are more medicinal and more like acting specifically on a part of your body or more anti-infective or what have you. So um, that's my general take on tincture making is folk method, 100 proof vodka, you're gonna have a beautiful remedy and it's gonna be in an alcohol that your body can handle. And it's, especially if you're making it from the fresh plant material or you can find someone that's making it from the fresh plant material. Catskill Mountain Herbals 
check them out and think they use 100 proof vodka with a lot of fresh plant materials for their tinctures. And they don't pay me to say that. They don't even know who I am. (laughs) Um, So basically, um, so a one to five ratio, so that's one part herb and five parts alcohol. What I found when I was working with ratios of tinctures, that sometimes if you're doing like a one part alcohol to one part herb, you have you don't have enough alcohol even to saturate the herb necessarily. Um, or it just becomes so concentrated. And really, the other thing is that alcohol can only, you, know, you can only extract so much, which this is what this person was alluding to um, as well in her question. So again, there's no problem with experimenting and seeing what kind of remedy you do get and what kind of results you do get with it. Nothing bad is going to happen other than you, you'll learn something and you might have to throw a small jar of remedy to the compost or back to the earth. But from my experience, you know, if you do like a one-to-one ratio, then potentially all of that alcohol could get absorbed right into the plant material and it's going to be really hard to squeeze any amount of alcohol back out of that plant material. Um, Even if you you might have the high-end tincture press that might be able to get a lot out, but especially with roots, um, I find that they can really take in a lot of alcohol and not give it back. Um, so that might be some problems there. Again, I think if you work with the 100 proof vodka, you have to worry less about the dosage and the amount that people are consuming each day. Um, you know, once we start getting into, we want to make something more potent, so we take less of it. That's where people start, you know, you do your percolation method tincture making with like really high proof alcohol. And you're, you're, you're really inching your way toward phytochemistry and toward making drugs and to making more dangerous remedies. I haven't worked specifically with a lot of people with Lyme disease, especially chronic Lyme, but my general feeling or take on it is that these people would work best with gentle remedies because their body tends to be overactive or overreactive, I should say, and depleted and exhausted and sore and already in a weakened state. And so if we start hammering them with really extreme potent herbal remedies to like knock out that Lyme disease or to kill an infection, then they're going to have likely, I would assume, a negative reaction to that. Where from my take and the wise woman tradition that I've learned from is the first place we really want to start is with nourishing them and giving them the minerals and the herbs that are going to support their body functions and not force it into a way or to fight an infection. We want to support their immune response um, instead of you know, I don't know. And again, I don't know specifically what herbs you're talking about. So this question is really broad. And you'd really have to get into each herb specifically that you're talking about. But I assume it's, you know, some really potent herbs like 
um, teasel root or um, uh, Japanese knotweed, these herbs that are usually taken in small doses anyway. So I would say, and I noticed the person that wrote this um, is a doctor. And so you're going to be more inclined to go more like intense pharmaceutical drug-like remedies. And I want to say, try backing backing up and back off on that concept and look at nourishment and look at whole remedies made with fresh plants in 100-proof vodka and even taken in small doses instead of really high doses and see what kind of results you can get there. Okay. Would you re- next next question? Would you recommend a book I could follow which would tell me what, how much, how, how long? If it would tell me a bit about the herb, when to harvest and what it is good for, even better. Or even a few books. Some about herbs and their functions and some about making goodies. So, uh, you know, My first herb course that I took was with KP Kulsa in Olympia, Washington. And he said, you know, to be a good herbalist, you need a library of 200 herb books. And I was kind of like, oh, my God. And we had to buy a whole bunch of herb books just in that course that I took with him. It was like a nine-month clinical herbalist course back in the 90s. And since then, I have been... Um, just accumulating herb books everywhere I go. It's like my present to myself is I'll buy myself an herb book or um, when I go to used bookstores or any bookstore, I'm always looking at the herb shelves. We're so lucky these days that there are so many books about herbs and herbalism and so many different authors' takes on herbalism. And so... I say the more the merrier, because you can learn and take bits and pieces from a lot of different people. Throughout these podcasts that I've been doing throughout the episodes, I usually highlight at least one book or read a quote from at least one book from my library. So, you know, cue into that and check out, those are all books that I recommend. So check out those books. Um, Also, look for books about your area. The person that wrote this question actually lives in New Zealand. So definitely look at like medicinal plants from New Zealand or if there's, um, oh, um, Isla Burgess, Weeds Heal. Isla Burgess. And then she also has another book, which I haven't gotten my hands on, but she is a New Zealand Kiwi herbalist and anything that she writes or any information that she puts out there, I would highly recommend. And her book, Weeds Heal, is beautiful and wonderful. I don't know if it's still in print, but that is definitely one to check out. So also like a medicinal plants of your region or even just a field guide to plants in your region is going to be important. Um, And then from there, I mean, we do have, I think, some common weeds from where I am to where you are, but there's also going to be a very different plant world. So I can recommend books that I love for my region and, and for, um, from American authors, 
which, but um, you can also check those out and see, see if they apply to where you are. And I am so excited that I'm now working with a publisher to write a book that will probably come out in May. So more on that to come. But I did go through my numerous stacks of books that I have like throughout my office in my bedroom that I've been pulling from for these podcasts specifically. And so I pulled out a few that I can share with you. Uh, One is... Uh, Backyard Medicine by Julie Brutton Seal and Matthew Seal. And they are actually based in the UK, I believe. And um, they have awesome books about foraging, really common herbs, elder, dandelion, couch grass, comfrey, cleavers, cherry, burdock, birch, bilberry, That's just the first half that I'm scanning through. And they have uh, good information. They talk about harvesting. They have some good remedies that you can make. And it's, um, you know, really easily accessible information. So I really like them. They have a variety of now, they have like a second edition of Backyard Medicine and a big book of Backyard Medicine. And I like it so much that I have all three of those. Okay, a classic, uh, Healing Wise by Susan Weed. I love this book. And she goes through um, really in-depth five or six herbs. Can't remember how many. Burdock, chickweed, dandelion, nettle, oat straw, seaweeds, and violet. And, you know, each herb has at least 20 to 40 pages on it. And... That's cool. Like she kind of covers all different aspects of each herb. Plus, in the beginning of the book, she talks a lot about the wise woman tradition, the heroic tradition, and the scientific tradition and the differences between those. So this is a classic and a book that I really recommend and love. There is this book called The Wild Wisdom of Weeds, 13 Essential Plants for Human Survival by Katrina Blair, forward by Sandor Alex Katz. He's the fermentation guy. And I love this book. I actually don't really know Katrina Blair, but this book is a beautiful book. It has a lot of pages and it has some beautiful photography in it. And it really talks about super common weeds that grow everywhere and in-depth with recipes and harvesting and growing. So she has amaranth, chickweed, clover, dandelion, dock, grass, knotweed, lamb's quarter, mallow, mustard, plantain, purslane, thistle are the herbs. And each of those herbs has its own chapter. Um, And then just... She talks a lot in the front of the book in the introduction about permaculture basics and the importance of eating wild weeds and eating wild in your diet. So that's a good one. Um, Rosalie De La Foray uh, and Emily Hahn have a book called Wild Remedies. And this is a relatively new book and it is also a beautiful book 
that is how to forage healing foods and craft your own herbal medicine. So they go through the seasons and the herbs that you would find in the different seasons and how to make remedies with them, how to harvest them, how to harvest sustainably. And also a cool thing that they talk about is the role of the herbs within the ecosystem, like what birds or insects might depend on the herbs as well. Um, they also have like food ideas and herbal remedies. So under yarrow, they have like a yarrow elderflower tea and a yarrow bug spray. Um, they ha and it's cool because like Rosalie lives up in the Pacific. Well, I don't know if she lives up in. I don't know, Washington or Oregon, but on the dry side of the mountains, I think. I could be wrong. Sorry, Rosalie. Um, and then Emily Hahn lives more down like near LA, I think. So they have herbs that are both found in more like dry, deserty areas, and then also herbs that are found in um, more temperate regions. So under nettle, they have like a nettle asparagus soup potato pancakes with nettle and nettle frittata. So they have foods and herbal remedy recipes. So that's a good one to check out. And then Rosalie De La Foray also has the book Alchemy of Herbs, which was the book that came out before Wild Remedies, where she talks about the tastes of herbs and also has like monographs on a bunch of herbs and a bunch of different recipes. I don't know if there's a lot about harvesting necessarily, but so those two herb books are cool. And then let's see the Boreal Herbal Wild Food and Medicine Plants of the North. And this is like way north, like, I don't know, Alaska North. But a lot of these herbs also collate with, correlate with Maine and are con like mugwort and mint and malvas and sorrels and yarrow and berries and another really beautiful book. Um, they have a whole section on making different herbal medicines and herbal healing creams and juices and smoothies and muffins and biscuits and pancakes. So this is a really beautiful book. I guess that's covering like Canada, Alaska, Russia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland is kind of like the region for the boreal forest and plant growth. Um, Greenland and the Pacific Northwest and areas, but then this woman lives in the Yukon in Canada. Not sure if that would apply to parts of New Zealand or not, but it seems like you have some extreme regions in your country. So, um, okay. Two, uh, two final books that I'll talk about. Gail Faith, oh no, sorry. Uh, yeah, Gail Faith Edwards, Opening Our Wild Hearts to the Healing Herbs. It's just a huge materia medica. Um, of herbs and she has a farm in Maine 
And then uh, Body into Balance, an herbal guide to holistic self-care, Maria Noel Groves, and she's based in New Hampshire. Um, and this book's a little bit different in where a lot of these other books I talked about are very herb-centered and herb-focused. Uh, so it talks about the herbs, what the herbs are good for, and how to work with them. The Body into Balance is more goes by body systems. And it is another really beautiful book, really beautiful photographs, and kind of more, it's maybe a little bit more clinical-ish, and, you know, go and talks about herbs within the body systems that they help. And there's like little bits on the herbs um, and how to work with them, but also kind of focuses more on uh, improving health with the herbs. So that's a good place to get started anyway. And then definitely Isla Burgess Weeds Heal, if you can find that. All right. Well, so I hope you enjoyed this episode of answering your questions. And I, you know, would love it if you could send in more questions and maybe this could be a monthly episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you. And if you appreciate me too, I'd love a five-star rating and or a short review, especially on the iTunes or the Apple podcasts. I really value your feedback and you can subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, my website, um, you can also sign up for an informational and inspirational newsletter, which I will start sending out again once gardening season's almost over here, I swear. Um, all You can find me all with the tag Solidago Herb School, and the Healthy Herb Podcast also has its own IG Instagram account. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well. Let intuition guide you and have fun with herbs. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.